Hello, friends. Welcome to the Rogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, and artists who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's podcast, we learn from Dr. Amy Kenny about her important and brilliant new book entitled My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. It's a book that describes her experiences as a disabled Christian and some of the unintentional ableism present in our churches. In her book, she provides guidance on how we all can create more inclusive spiritual homes where disabled people fully belong and thrive in all aspects of church ministry. Dr. Amy Kinney is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer whose research focuses on medical and bodily themes in literature. Her work has been featured in Teen Vogue, The Mighty, The Audacity, and Sojourners. In this episode, Dr. Amy Kinney talks with us about why she decided to write about disability justice in the church. She describes what it feels like to be dismissed and silenced at church because of her disability. She talks about how disabled people can become a theological problem for some believers. She shares what it means to be made in the image of God, even in our disabilities. She provides encouragement for disabled people who have been harmed at church, and she provides advice for church members who want to better love and support the disabled people in their congregation. Here's our conversation. Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast to talk about your awesome new book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. And I would love to start by talking a little bit about your academic background um, and your PhD work at the University of Sussex. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Um, it's a thrill to be here. My PhD work, that's quite a place to start. <laughs> Most of the time, people get a little bit queasy whenever I talk about my academic work because a lot of it is on researching decapitation and dismemberment and the way that disability and decapitation and dismemberment was performed on the early modern stage. So wow. I had the opportunity of working at the Globe in London for several years, and we did all kinds of experiments, not decapitating anyone, but we did all kinds of experiments on kind of the, the different types of special effects and how they would actually produce those special effects, given the atmosphere and the context of um, when Shakespeare's plays were originally performed. So I bring all of that kind of practical work into my research um, through uh, looking at different manuals and diaries and recipe booklets from the early modern period, and then also thinking about what the audience was actually seeing and smelling and tasting as they were watching these really gnarly scenes unfold. Wow, that is so fascinating. Um, I'm curious, like, as you were like looking at these manuscripts and doing all this research on, on Shakespeare and just the literature at the time, how you saw disability, that, that narrative portrayed. Yeah, there's in Shakespeare, as in society now, there's lots of ableism. And so sifting through that is always a little bit of a task, especially, at, you know, because I am disabled. I think what's interesting is thinking about the difference between performing disability and kind of the theatrical world and cues of disability versus the lived experience of disability. So a lot of times, even though my research is thinking about disability broadly, it's not really the lived experience of disabled people so much as it is how it would be performed, often as sort of a costume or a trope and sort of evacuated of the lived experience and the humanity of it, unfortunately. 
Can you talk a little bit more about these tropes that you were seeing? Disability is usually put on as a type of costume to Ghana something in Shakespeare. So um, using it, pretending to be mad is the term that's used, but we would probably now say mentally ill, um, to fool people, to deceive people, to try to eavesdrop on people, or sometimes in a lot of female characters' cases, plays in the period are using mental illness as a way to get rid of unwanted sexual advances as well. Disability can also be used as a way to comment on poverty or on villainy. So if we think of Richard III and the way that Richard really plays up his disability and talks about himself as disabled and it becomes performative in a way and his disability is a way for him to excuse his really villainous behavior. Mm, that's so fascinating. Now, tell me about your transition to actually write a, really a, a theological work uh, talking about how the church um, has hurt disabled people. Yeah, well, really just following the cloud, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I, have, I have grown up in the church. I have been a Jesus follower for you know, the vast majority of my life. And so with that just comes a lot of examples and a lot of content really in terms of the way that people have treated me because I'm disabled. Everything from people praying for me or, um, you know, accusing me of sinning or accusing me of being, a, of having some sort of demons or demonic power to trying to do exorcisms to, telling me that I don't believe enough, or if I just had faith, I would be able to get up and walk and run. And just over time, analyzing those experiences, thinking about what those experiences were, the more that I talked about them to people in my own community and to others, the more that people were always somehow surprised by my experience as a disabled woman in church. And it was as though folks had never heard this before. And just from processing my own experience and writing about it, I started sharing with different writing groups I was in. And just from there, kind of this idea for the book came about. And it's really just my lived experience, my experience being disabled, my experience with God being disabled and how that has impacted my faith and my, um, and hopefully my spiritual development and also inviting others to rethink what they think about disability and a lot of the assumptions that they have about disabled people. I think what was really interesting too, uh, when I was beginning to read your book, you start off with a note on language and I was thinking about your, your background with English literature and Shakespeare and how important language is to you as a professor, as a scholar. Um, and you start the book uh, talking about why the words we use matter, especially when we talk about marginalized groups. And you talk about how we need to be very careful about when we're using people first language versus identity first language. Those are two terms I had no idea existed. So when you shared that, I was like, oh, that I never even heard that as a concept. And then when you gave the examples of people first language, which is like people with disabilities um, or identity first language, disabled people. Those are two different ways of portraying people. And you describe your thought process on how you chose which term to go with. 
I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and how these word choices are debated maybe inside and outside disabled communities. So I refer to myself as a disabled person or a disabled woman, and I use I use identity first language because to me it's kind of a reclamation of the word. Disabled has been used as a derogatory term, a kind of slur, something that has been used against me. And a lot of times we hear a lot of euphemisms when it comes to disability. So people will tell me, you're not disabled, you're differently abled, <laughs> or you're special needs, or you're handy capable. And all of those, I think, are really embarrassed by the word disability. And they're showing that if you have to use a euphemism, there's something kind of inappropriate about the word itself. So for me, saying disabled first illustrates to others that I'm reclaiming that word. I'm not a euphemism or a metaphor. I'm disabled. And there's nothing wrong with that. Many disabled friends that I know do the same. They use identity-first language as a type of reclamation, as a force to be reckoned with, that we are disabled and proud and we're not ashamed of our disabilities. And then other people I know use people-first language, people with disabilities, and I honor that, I respect that. Um, I think it's really up to the individual to identify themselves how they want. I think a lot of times what happens though is that it is people in close proximity to us who I notice using people-first language, or even worse, those kind of euphemisms, differently abled special needs. And I think that reveals that they are somewhat embarrassed to talk about disability as we are, and they want to, often the argument for people-first language is, well, we don't want to embarrass anyone, we don't want to make anyone feel bad, we want people to be humans first. I've never doubted that I'm a human, <laughs> so I'm cool with saying disabled person or disabled woman, and I'm not embarrassed by that. I love the way you you approached it, and you you um, you helped me like see like through that lens because that's something I never even thought about. That wasn't even a thought that I had, and when you brought that up, I was like, wow, I really need to be really thoughtful the next time I use that that phrase or when I'm writing about something to be sure that I am um, using the right words that's going to properly honor the person I'm talking about. Thank you. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Because sometimes we just don't know. That, you know, when someone calls me special needs, that word feels really prickly. It feels like I have needs that are extra or that are in excess and my needs are really human. So mm. uh, I think it's done well intentioned, but often people just don't know. Yeah. And I think that, that was something that you brought up time and time again in your book about you understand like what people sometimes are trying to do. They're trying how they how they're meaning something, but it comes off completely wrong, hurtful, harmful, and sometimes the way that we're talking about something or the way that we're approaching a topic, especially around disability, that um, the words we use, we have to be very, very thoughtful about it. And that's something that you have made very, very clear in your book. Um, and I have to tell you, like, I thoroughly enjoyed reading like your story. And there were so many times as I was reading, and I had like my, my pen in my hand, because I always have a pen, and I was like underlining and there were certain moments where I had to stop because what you said like just like shook me. And so I have some passages that I want to read to you that shook me and I have some questions I'd love for you to maybe expand on. So when your book opens up, 
you start off by describing your book as a scream and you write, this book is my scream. On its pages, you might find parts of my story that make you feel uncomfortable, confused, or even convicted. I hope that you continue reading, knowing that these moments of discomfort are points of departure rather than destinations. And as you listen to my screams, may they call you to join me in reimagining the church together. May they reverberate until no disabled person ever has to stifle their screams again. And when I read that, I had to stop and I was thinking about why do we scream? And I was like, man, we scream when we're in pain, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're tired of being silenced. I, I wanted to ask you about, as you were writing that, it was such a powerful statement. Um, what to you was leading to this scream? Yeah, it's all of those and more. <laughs> um, I think when we scream, it can't be dismissed. And I have so long been dismissed and silenced when I have spoken up about what it's like to be disabled in church spaces. When I have shared, oh, hey, that's actually kind of harmful to me, or that's not cool, or I think that's a little bit ableist in your thinking there. I have often been told I'm too sensitive, or I need to calm down, or someone didn't mean it that way, or it doesn't mean that anymore, or it's in the Bible, <laughs> all of which are really silencing techniques. And I think that when someone screams, it triggers a kind of physiological response in us, in our brains, in our emotions that can't be ignored. And I think that that is one of my hopes for the book, that it would invite people to think about the harm that they have done, even inadvertently, and that they would not be able to stifle my screams or the screams of any other disabled people. You touched on something that I would love for you to expand on, which is like these um, these statements that are supposed to calm you down. Like, oh, they didn't mean it like that. Um, or it's in the Bible. Or I think you're just being really sensitive. Like that, on top of what you're experiencing, is like double traumatizing. Can you talk about that language and how it just gaslights the situation. Yeah, it absolutely does. And in the book, I talk a lot about the difference between impact and intent. And I think anytime I voice that something is ableist or something is harmful, a lot of people respond in defensiveness and in sharing their intent. Well, that's not how I meant it. And then therefore it can't be harmful. And of course, there's another factor at play, which is how it is situated in time and context, what words mean outside of how you meant them, and also how it's received. And I give this example of food poisoning and this idea that, you know, when you inadvertently food poison someone, if they said to you, I was food poisoned last night at your house, you wouldn't say, well, your stomach's too sensitive. Or you wouldn't say, um, well, I didn't mean to food poison you. Duh! <laughs> if you're in a friendship context <laughs> where it's not assumed that you're not meaning to poison your friends, then, you know, you should probably get better friends if that's not already assumed in your friendships. But we have such a different lexicon and a different series of responses when it comes to emotional hurt or when it comes to poisoning someone with words. So one that's used a lot towards me is lame. 
lame means that you're unable to walk or that, um, you know, there is something preventing you from walking. And people will use lame as a slur, as a, a way to say that something is cheesy or undesirable. And when I ask them not to, more often than not, the response is, I didn't mean it that way. And so I would love for people to, regardless of how they meant it, really take on board that that's a really ableist and harmful word. Yeah. And I thought you, um, the way you brought up a lot of this ableist talk that's happening in our churches and the words that we use that are very, very harmful. Um, it actually, it hit me because I was thinking about the, the same words that I'm using. Maybe when I say that, oh, I was blind to that, or um, I was deaf to that, or um, just most recently, I do a lot of social media monitoring to be sensitive to different topics. And in my reporting, I would say, hey, to avoid being tone deaf, let's do this. Not even thinking about what that impact of that language does to somebody with that disability. Yeah, and one that I get a lot is crippling. That was crippling, or that was paralyzing. And, you know, physiologically, I am crippled, even though that word is outdated and we wouldn't use that word today. When you say that a meeting was crippling just because it was bad, what it does is it is conflating my body with bad. And it's conflating me with something negative that you didn't enjoy or that you found undesirable. And some of us are probably thinking, well, that's not really a big deal or they didn't mean it that way. But when the messages you receive every single day from people is that you and your body are bad, gross, ugly, undesirable, it's really harmful over time. And it's difficult then to really think about yourself as bearing the image of God if you're constantly told that you're all of those negative attributes. Can you talk a little bit about being made in the image of God and the theology, like looking at our bodies, being made in the image of God, regardless of how we are functioning? Yeah, it doesn't say in Genesis... God created them, asterisk, caveat, except for disabled people who aren't made in God's image. But unfortunately, that's kind of the way that people act sometimes. There's this idea that I'm not fully made in the image of God or that my body is uniquely responsible for or uniquely bears the weight of sin or destruction or the fall. I'm told a lot that my body is a result of sin either my sin, my parents' sin, or just kind of, you know, the cosmic tyrant of sin. And that really forgets about the fact that my body, my disabled body, bears God's image. And that says more about people saying that to me than it does about God, I think, that we don't have a framework to think about disabled bodies as divine because we have been so rooted in a system that tells us that disabled bodies are lacking. And so it's difficult to then connect that to God. How do you approach conversations with people who are very much passionate about feeling like everyone um, should be free of disability and they don't see how you can be Christian and not think that way? I just run them over with my wheelchair and I get out of there before they can stop me. <laughs> I crank that right on up to, <laughs> from turtle to tortoise, uh, from turtle to hare, and away we go. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's tough because I think for a lot of people, my body is a theological problem. 
Mm-hmm. And to me, it's my body. I can't escape it. I can't agree to disagree. This is the body that I have been given. And it's really difficult when people are unwilling to meet me at a place of accepting and celebrating my disability as something that displays God to the world. I've been told a lot that I don't have enough faith or that I need to believe more because Jesus didn't die for me to be in a wheelchair Mm. or Jesus would want to see me healed. And I think that really misunderstands the difference between healing and curing that we see in the scriptures. And I think it also erases so many scriptures where we see disabled people at the forefront of the work that God is doing with humanity. Can you talk a little bit about the disabled people in scripture, those stories um, that stand out to you that you find very, very powerful that more people need to know about? Yeah, one of my favorite stories in scripture is in Luke 14, and Jesus tells people to go out quickly and find poor and disabled people, specifically saying lame, blind, crippled people there, and invite them to a banquet, and you will receive a blessing at the day of resurrection. There's no suggestion there that disabled people are cured or that anything has changed about their bodies. Generally speaking, that great banquet is taken to be eschatology or thinking about giving us a vision for new creation. And yet it includes poor and disabled people dining just as they are together at a banquet that is meant to be emblematic of the kingdom. And I think anytime I bring that up, I'm told, oh, but that's just a metaphor, (laughs) you know, or that doesn't really mean disabled people. And that's a little bit convenient to pick and choose when a disabled character is actually disabled in the meaning. But even beyond that, I get so much um, comfort of the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel and receiving a blessing and a limp in response. And I definitely think of my disability as a type of blessing and a type of way of communing with the living God. We see that Isaac becomes blind. Moses has a speech disorder. Elijah has depression. Timothy has um, stomach infirmities. Mephibosheth has two lame feet. Paul has the thorn in the flesh. I mean, the list goes on and on. Disability is a place of encounter with the living God in scripture and today. What I thought was uh, beautiful was as you were teaching me in your book about how scripture talks about the future vision of Jerusalem and you cite uh, Zechariah 8 and also Jeremiah 31. And I'll just quote those, those passages right now. Zechariah 8 verses 4 and 5 says, Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. And then Jeremiah 31, 8, uh, See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. Those are passages I never thought about. And you like brought them to the forefront. Like, look, this was a vision of a future Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm told very often that there are no wheelchairs in heaven. And I've actually been the recipient of a poem that says that many times from strangers. And I think the assumption there is that I must be sad, um, weary, teary, and dreary, just sitting in my wheelchair, sad that I'm disabled. And that's just not the case. 
being disabled is often not the worst part of my day. And I think that idea that there are no wheelchairs in heaven comes from a good place, but kind of misses out on all of these visions for new creation and what that looks like in the Bible. Zechariah, Jeremiah, um, Luke, there's many that are really thinking about it's not that new creation has all of us in these 26-year-old beach buddies running around. New creation has space for the diversity of creation and invites, you know, even in that passage, people who are pregnant, people who are old, disabled people, all of us to gather together, to live in harmony, to co-flourish, to be a part of the community of creation. And it doesn't seem to suggest in any of those passages that bodies are cured or changed in any way for that kingdom reality to come about. As you were uh, sharing that picture of uh, new creation and this future Jerusalem, um, I was thinking back to what you wrote in the middle of your book, which was really focused on churches that are not being inclusive. Because uh, now we, ha we have a scripture pointing out this inclusive, beautiful new creation. Um, and I was thinking like, well, conversely, look at our churches and how sometimes we are excluding people um, who are disabled because we're not thinking about um, different disabilities and how it's impacting people. And you have a, a chapter dealing with um, even how church leaders have dismissed the ADA um, and fought against regulation, uh, which would help organizations and churches to implement uh, policies and ways to help disabled come into the churches. And you would think that churches would be like the first to stand up and say, yes, we need these rule, we need these policies in place to help disabled people come into our churches. And, and sadly, as you point out, church leaders, not to say that all of them, but there are church leaders who have fought against that sort of regulation. Can you talk about, for Christians listening in, who maybe have not thought about their specific church and ways that their church might be excluding people who are disabled. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking, isn't it, that churches fought against the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's something that is so tragic to me because I agree we should be on the forefront of welcoming and setting the table for all of our neighbors, disabled and non-disabled alike. And it really flies in the face of that, that argument as well, that my experience is just an individual one and actually demonstrates the systemic issues at play here, that this is something that probably most churches can be working on improving in terms of how they are welcoming disabled people. There's a few things to keep in mind when it comes to accessibility and accommodations. The physical space, so are there ramps and um, or only stairs? Is there an elevator? Is there an accessible bathroom that is wide enough for mobility, scooters or wheelchairs? The kind of sensory environment, lights, smells, sounds. I think also it's important to think about worship songs, the words that we use in worship songs, how we gather together, what sort of liturgical aspects of worship there are. 
this idea of please stand or all rise is something that's often a part of church services for worship. And of course, not all of us can physically stand or not everyone can be part of an environment silently. So thinking about even just the social norms of the church space and what you're expecting. And then beyond that, there's some questions to think about. Are disabled people welcomed without condemnation or critique? Can we come to your church and be a part of your church and serve and lead in your church without people trying to admonish us for sinning because we're simply because we're disabled? Does your church learn from disabled people? Do you hire disabled speakers for conferences or for events? Do you learn from disabled people when we share, oh, hey, I, need, I have this access need. Can we improve this or do you dismiss us? Are you inviting disabled people to lead and flourish in your community? Or is it that all of the disabled people are ministered to instead of being a part of the leadership of your church? So I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that because disabled people are you know, one-fourth of the U.S. population, that one-fourth of your elders, deacons, and pastors always have to be disabled, although that'd be rad. <laughs> That's not always a litmus test, but I think, does your church have disabled people in leadership and not just ministered to is something very important. Can you give advice for, for those listening in who are disabled, who maybe just feel like, I'm tired, I, I don't want to deal with having to talk to my church leadership about ways they're not being inclusive to me. I'd rather just like, just stop going to church because I just don't want to deal with the hassle. Um, and also maybe to the parents who are struggling, maybe they have a disabled child and they're just worn out and they just, they don't want to make waves in the church. They're, they just want to like have peace, but then it's hard for them to even go to church because the church isn't accessible to their children. It's, it's really, I think, a, a struggle for so many who are in that position where they want to be at church, but there's so many barriers in place. And sometimes they feel like, I'm just, I, I just not going to go anymore. It's not worth it. Yeah, I totally understand why. And it gets really exhausting constantly having to advocate for your own humanity, asking for people to think of you and treat you as a human and not as an object or a prayer request or a mascot. It's truly exhausting. And when you have been a part of a church community that you have invested in and served in and given to with your, your time, your talent, your treasure, it's really, really dehumanizing for them to not welcome your access needs and celebrate your disability and learn from your wisdom because it feels like, it feels like you're another level of being dismissed and another way that the church is, is really just like the world. So to disabled people who are exhausted, I would say, never doubt that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that your body and your diagnosis and everything that you can and you can't do reflect the image of God to the world, that you contain disability wisdom and insight that can teach the church how to be embodied and that you are holy and meaningful to the kingdom regardless of whether people acknowledge that in your church. If you're 
exhausted as a parent or as a disabled person and you no longer want to be a part of a church community, I think it's okay to, to leave and to go to a different church community where you are celebrated or to take space of rest and try to replenish and soak in the knowledge that you are meaningful to the creator of the universe and that you are not a mistake. And, and for those of us in congregations where maybe we haven't been thinking about the disabled, um, but now we, we, we've, we've heard what you've said, we've read your book, and we want to be better advocates. We want to start to make some positive changes and also reach out to those who are disabled in our congregations and be an ally. Um, do you have any suggestions on, on um, ways to begin kind of approaching those conversations with church leadership as well as those who are disabled in our congregations? Yeah, I say welcome. It's never too late to be an ally. It's never too late to learn. I really believe that. I think that it is meaningful that you have taken this step in wanting to learn and grow. And so that could look like you reading from and learning from other disabled and chronically ill people, Lamar Hardwick, Stephanie Tate, Aaliyah Joy, Shannon Dingle, um, Robert J. Monson, Erica Ramos-Thompson, among them. Those are some places to start of disabled and chronically ill people who are in faith and church settings talking about what they've experienced being disabled. My book as well. <laughs> but I think the main thing is to really learn from the disabled people that you are in community with. If a disabled person tells you that's not cool, or that's harmful, or I need this for my access needs, believe them. Don't question, don't dismiss, don't doubt. Whether you understand it or not, believe them. And then try to support them in whatever way you can. And I think right away there's questions or sometimes excuses about cost and this idea of, well, our church doesn't have the money to put in ramps, or our church doesn't have the resources to be able to support disabled people. And I think, you know, we are made in the image of a creator who created kangaroos. They're so weird. They jump. I mean, and I'm Australian. They, they jump. They have really, they can kill you with their tails. They're marsupials. They have a pouch. Like, they're just weird. They're a weird animal, you know? And we're created in that same creator's image. We are inherently creative. And the we there is all of humanity, but particularly disabled people are creative because we live in a world that isn't built for us. So we've had to be creative with the way that we interact with people and move around and get about. And so I would say don't let cost or convenience get in the way of you doing the kingdom work of welcoming disabled people. You mentioned how sometimes at church you are feeling less than human based on what's being discussed and how you're being treated. And um, you have a, a chapter, we have several chapters dealing with kind of the ableist ideas happening um, in churches. And I, I want to read this quote. I thought it was very, very powerful. You write, churches peddle ableist ideas in sneaky ways. They create ministries to disabled people, casting us into groups of second-class citizens who must be segregated from the general congregation, never considering that disabled people have something to teach the broader community about living an embodied faith 
never realizing that we are not objects of pity and charity, but image bearers with our own gifts to share with the beloved community. And I stopped there because I was like, oh gosh, I'm like, because I've been at so many churches where there's like the, the ministry for the disabled. And it's like, well, that's where they go. And that just seems like that's just part of like, oh, when I go to church, well, it's nice that they have their own disabled community over there. And it's like a separate ministry, separate from the congregation. I never even thought about how, how harmful that is. Yeah. This idea of keeping disabled people separate is really based on that charity model that we are objects, not subjects, that we are to be pitied instead of just treated as human beings or celebrated, and that we can be tolerated, but so long as we're segregated from the rest of the community and we don't distract people. And I think there's a lot of fear in that model because what will happen if we gasp, are integrated? You know, what will happen if our bodies or our minds or our mouths make sounds that aren't considered, quote, acceptable in church. And I think there's a lot of shame rooted in that as well. I think this idea that disabled people are better off outside of schools, outside of church, outside of the workforce, outside of the norm, I think all of those are intertwined. And they're all rooted in an idea that we are less than human. Even if it's done with a lot of charity and a lot of pity, it's still the idea that we aren't quite fully human subjects who get to be part of the worship and the congregation. Are there other, because you talk about like other sneaky ways that these ableist ideas are kind of presented you know, from the pulpit or just in ministry. Are there other things that you see happening at churches that just make you cringe or like, the church thinks it's doing the right thing, but it's totally harmful or just like they'd have no clue like how that's being phrased or um, what they're doing is actually ableist. The first one that comes to mind is where the title of my book comes from, which is people come up to me praying all the time, asking if they can pray for my body or asking if they can cast out my demons. And that's really harmful to hear dozens and dozens of times, especially throughout childhood and my teenage years, being told that I had demons that needed to be mm. cast out or that my body was somehow a problem that needed to be prayed away. I really do think that comes from a good place of people wanting to be faithful, but unfortunately it's rooted in a lot of misconceptions about disability the separate but not equal disability services or disability activities that are outside of the life of the church, the way that people talk about stewarding tithe in competition with disabled needs. So I uh, was part of a church for a while that didn't have a ramp to get into the main mm. sanctuary. And I was told that it wouldn't be stewarding tithe well to mm. purchase a ramp. Well, that's unfortunate. And how is it not stewarding Tithewell to make sure that I can access the main worship service? I was part of a church where there was a ramp to get into the building, and yet the main entrance was the one with stairs. Mm. And when I asked about it or said that's kind of exclusionary, the life of the church is taking place over on those stairs, the coffee, the community, yeah. the announcements, the chit-chat... And when I reflected that back to leadership and 
I was told that, well, the other entrance wasn't as nice looking or mm. it's not as pretty to go around to the back entrance with the ramp. That was acceptable for me to do though, wasn't it? But not for everyone else. And I think, you know, I, I don't think that people saying those things are meaning to be malicious, but they haven't given much thought to disability. And that's one of the problems is that they don't really intend harm because they don't really intend anything about disability. They haven't given me or other disabled siblings in the body of Christ. They haven't really given us any, any thought. I mean, your book helps to give us that vision. It helps us to see what it's like to be disabled and how churches can be harmful. And you have done just a fantastic job providing that story and helping us to see so I think just being able to see can make all the difference in how we are treating the disabled in our congregations. And I know we're going to be closing here, but I wanted to say that also one of the most powerful chapters was when you started writing about our disabled God. And um, that moved me as well, um, because that's something I have not thought a lot about. And you pointed out uh, passages in Scripture where maybe God has been deaf to his people or mute to his people. And that was something I had never thought about till you raised it. And to look at disability in regards to God, that was, that was powerful. Thank you. Yeah, Daniel describes God as having a fiery wheelchair. Daniel says that God sits on a throne that has wheels underneath it and they're fiery flames. And Ezekiel describes God as having this massive mobility device that has these four angels and fused legs and these colossal wheels that are within wheels that are topaz and fiery and shimmering. And so God's throne is a wheelchair. And I like to think of that when I'm strolling about town um, in my own wheelchair or mobility device that I think about, you know, yeah, my wheelchair is reminiscent of the throne of the living God. I think Jesus also we can think about as disabled. Jesus has these resurrected scars and asks for Thomas to put his hands in them. And this disabled body is the only example that we get of that imperishable form. And so why would we think that our bodies would be any different when we get to new creation. And then of course, thinking also about how the spirit communicates, you know, when we're told that when we don't know what to pray, that mm. the spirit can communicate on our behalf and intercede on our behalf with groans too deep to utter. And that reminds me a lot of the experience of communicating with someone who is non-speaking. So our triune God is disabled. And I have found so much comfort and solidarity in that and in my own disabled experience, thinking about how that is reflecting God to an unsuspecting world. It's beautiful. Amy, before we go, um, what advice would you give for, for Christians listening in um, to have a disability lens when they're reading scripture? Because all the, the stories you've been sharing, the Bible passages that have been so meaningful to you, like they're opening my eyes to the beauty that's there. And I'm just wondering, like maybe some last minute tips for those of us who want to read the Bible with a disability lens. 
I think one of the most important things is to read a translation that isn't kind of your go-to because I think that always makes it fresh for us. When I'm reading actually the indigenous translation right now and it just states things in different ways than the ones that I grew up with. So I think that can be helpful. I think reading it with community is really helpful and hopefully you have a diverse enough community that people are bringing their own disabilities and their own lived experience being disabled in conversation with the text. I think that can be really helpful. But the main thing I think is to listen to disabled people who you're friends with, who are who you work with, who are in your church community, and then even beyond that on social media as well, to follow and listen and learn from disabled people and just listen to what we say about these passages. I don't think that my book presents, you know, the reading, but this is how I have been able to commune with the living God. And I think being open to receive that my experience of God as disabled might actually benefit even people who are non-disabled because really by age or accident, most of us are going to experience disability in our lives. So I think it's really important to be as open as possible to where the cloud leads. That's beautiful. Well, Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me on, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Delgado Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in today's episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates on future episodes by following Delgado Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please share it with a friend and rate this show on this podcast player. Your votes and comments can help this podcast get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.